Hello from the ABA Mid-Year Meeting 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Rocky Deer. I'm Judge Bernice Donald from the U.S. Court of Appeals, Sixth Circuit. Sarah Redfield, Professor of Law, University of New Hampshire. Michelle Neitz, Professor of Law at Golden Gate University in San Francisco. Ron Kramer, Labor and Employment Attorney at Sci-Fi Show in Chicago. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It is a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to talk about socioeconomic bias. Some of us may not be thinking about that, but it's an important topic for us to be discussing today. I've got an all-star panel here. You just heard from them. Let's first of all find out what our panelists do. So let's start with that. Judge Donald, tell us more about yourself. Well, I am a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals, and I am involved in the Implicit Bias Initiative for the American Bar Association. And I understand there's a book. We're going to talk about the book in just Absolutely, a second. Absolutely. Yes. The book is Enhancing Justice and Reducing Bias, because that's important to the whole justice process. And Professor Redfield, you like books too, I understand. I am a professor, mostly emerita, from the University of New Hampshire, and also with Judge Donald, part of the Criminal Justice Section's Initiative on Implicit Bias. I was the editor of the book that you are discussing and chapter author, and we hope to write another one. So yes, we like books. Oh, good, good. I don't know how many lawyers like books, but I'm glad we found a couple here at our, <laughs> at our table. All right, Professor Neitz, tell us about yourself and what you do. Yes, I teach a variety of classes at Golden Gate University. I've been there for 13 years. I teach professional responsibility, which is where my interest in ethics and bias developed, as well as corporate law and poverty law. So I'm on either ends of wow. the spectrum, and I can speak to bias in a variety of ways. And I'm also a chapter author in the famous book that we're discussing today. All right. All right. Well, and that's, that's an eclectic group of topics you teach. This is fascinating. Yes, you know? there's only a handful of us in the country with that type of teaching load. No two days are alike for you, Correct. I'm sure. That's right. <laughs> and Ron, you and I, I think, are the only ones without a title. Regrettably, that is true. <laughs> yeah. That is true. So uh, do, you, do you do anything like me? <laughs> well, when I'm not moderating great panels, I do practice labor and employment law in Chicago. Uh, and I do like reading books. And this is one book that after hearing the presentation, I'm certainly going to be reading. Well, okay. So let's, let's talk about this for a second. So socioeconomic bias. I think we've, we've heard about implicit bias you know, in, in the legal landscape. Talk to us a little bit about socioeconomic bias. So uh, I became interested in socioeconomic bias myself because I have a background of working with low-income populations as a legal aid lawyer, as a homeless advocate in New York. And so I've worked all over the country with homeless and low-income populations. And there's a lot of attention paid to implicit gender bias, implicit racial bias, right. and these other constitutionally prohibited types of, of bias. But there has not been a lot of attention placed on the socioeconomics that could become inherent in implicit bias. And so there's really no way to talk about them all separately without recognizing the intersectionality of these types of bias. But socioeconomic bias is one that's a bit more subtle. I like to say no judge or lawyer is going to say, I really hate poor people. I find poor right. people really irritating. Right. But in truth, 
there is an implicit bias against low-income populations based a lot on the myths that we see in, in the media and elsewhere about poor people. And these myths and biases on the basis of socioeconomic status can actually have a real impact on these populations in the courtroom where decisions are being made every day that will determine the fate of their lives. And, and are, are these biases playing out in terms of the judge's decisions or the jury verdicts? Both? I would say both, and I will kick it to the judge. To and I, I, I would agree with that. You know, if you think about this, and, and she talked about the um, myths and stereotypes, right. we accord different values to the lives of different people, different social groups. The poor's lives are not valued as, as much when you talk about damages, when you talk oftentimes about credibility, when you talk about basic dignity and respect. Uh, those things can impact and drive decisions which can result in there being a denial of often equal justice and certainly a denial of equal opportunity. When we look at poor people, we make assumptions. We make assumptions that they are poor because they are lazy or because they don't want to work or because they have mental uh, health issues or because all range of things without ever looking at the individual. We cloak them with our own cultural stereotypes and sometimes that can put them in categories and define them and actually deny them uh, the equal protections that the law uh, accords them. Now, you guys were all on a panel today, and, and you were talking about, it, the title I thought was, was very catchy, Better to be Rich and Guilty. Was that, that was a question, yeah, right? Yeah, that and that's, that's taken by a famous quote from Brian Stevenson, who talks about and asserts that it is, in America, it is, and in the justice system, it is better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And we didn't talk about this today, but there are certainly different outcomes uh, when the parties are rich as opposed to, you know, non-rich. And we didn't talk about those statistics today because we weren't talking about criminal justice statistics, which is where his uh, statistics are drawn. But uh, we did talk about how these stereotypes can drive these outcomes that are disproportionate in terms of uh, the justice system. Now, is this true even of, say, jurors who may not be rich. You know, I think the term you used was non-rich, which I thought was, which I thought in and of itself was a very rich <laughs> word to use. But is this true even of, say, a jury pool that itself may not be all that wealthy? Are they also according more credibility to richer parties? Well, I mean, sometimes there's that possibility. Remember, I talked about people come into the courtroom bringing all of their stereotypes and looking at issues through their own lens. Right. There are members of the jury who are going to have uh, sometimes negative outcomes about the rich, negative outcomes about corporations. They're going to be going to have negative outcomes about the poor or the, uh, you know, as I said before, the non-rich. And so it can. And we as a court, we as a justice system have to educate around those uh, stereotypes and try to interrupt those biases to make sure that we have fair outcomes that are based on the law and the facts. How do we do that? Well, the biggest piece of interrupting bias uh, is making people aware that such biases exist. And so the whole field and discussion of implicit responses is based on the science that gave us a way to measure those responses. So before that research was done, largely at uh, the University of Washington was where it started with Tony Greenwald's work, we could only know if you were biased if we asked you. 
and you answered. And you may well not answer honestly, either because you don't want to be heard saying, oh, yes, I'm biased against non-rich, or because you don't really know about your own bias. But now that we have a way to measure implicit response and bias, we do know. And so we want to teach people to become aware of that so they can decide for themselves when to interrupt that bias and make a more thoughtful, more mindful, conscious decision. So do we need to talk to juries up front before they start a case? Is this, a, is this part of jury orientation? Or is this, is this something that needs to get more into the public vernacular? Well, absolutely, we need to talk to jurors about that because we need to help jurors do their job, which is to come to uh, the case with a neutral position. And we need to also help them become aware of those biases and service them so that they don't act on those biases, but they act on the independent facts and, and law. And I, Ron has been a trial lawyer for a number of years, and I, I think he would agree that we need to make sure that jurists have all of the tools and techniques to do a good job. What do you say, Ron? No, that is absolutely correct. You, you want your jurors to recognize that they may have these implicit biases on all levels and come into the come into a trial and, and look at the case and listen to it and, and, and do it in as non-biased a manner as possible. Now, I'm going to give our listeners a little bit of a homework assignment. We've got a book. We've got a book for them to read to learn more about this. Enhancing Justice, Reducing Bias. So tell us about this book. I think, Judge Donnelly, you said you're one of the authors of the book. Tell us what got you to write it and tell us a little bit more about what we might learn when we read well, it. Well, I am. I was the, the chair of the group that put it together mm. and uh, one of the co-chapter authors. But our editor, I think, is in the best position to really talk about the book. And I want to give her that opportunity. Professor Redfield, the judge just called on you in class. <laughs> So I I had the honor of being the editor of this book, and the book is written um, by around 30 different authors. Oh, wow. And each chapter has its own topic. So Michelle wrote the chapter on socioeconomic bias. The judge and I wrote the framing introductory chapter, but there's a chapter on implicit bias in the courts. There's a chapter on cultural competence. There's a science chapter written by our colleague, Justin Levinson, professor from the University of Hawaii. I think the most significant thing about the book was, in many ways, the authors. So they were not all lawyers. They were not all judges. There were lawyers and judges and social scientists and people people who've been on the ground doing work with people for many years. And that group made this book um, rich. And so there's a lot of diversity in the book and among the people who wrote it, which gives a lot of perspective for readers. And we're going to be working on another one, which will, this first one, as I said, was about educating people around the issue, raising awareness. And then we want to go to the next uh, tool and giving people tools to interrupt bias, giving them checklists and worksheets. And in our program this morning, which I'm so grateful to Ron's section for uh, presenting, but Michelle developed a, an exercise to sort of give the, uh, the audience to sort of help people understand how this might impact. How, how bias might impact. And I, I just wonder, Michelle, if you wanted to just say a word about some of the exercise that you've given students or other groups to help identify bias and how to deal with bias interruption. Sure. I think when we're specifically talking about socioeconomic bias, there are places where you are confronted with poverty the minute you step out the door in our country. And then there are places where you could live your whole day and never see someone who's a low income person. And so I think it's important for us to recognize where we get our beliefs about low income people. And it's one of the exercises that I've asked judges to do in California is to actually go visit the places where their litigants come from. So if, for example, 
example, you are a housing court judge and you know that most of the tenants in your courtroom are low-income tenants and you get irritated by the fact that many of these tenants are late while landlords are on time to their hearings, go and take the three buses that it might take to get to that courthouse. For my students in poverty law, I actually require, or we can modify if needed, but I ask them to go into social service centers and look at things like, what is the gender and racial makeup of the folks in those centers? Are there brochures on the wall? Is there childcare for these centers for low-income people who may have children? And really kind of get out of our own comfort zone and go into places where you're going to come face-to-face with low-income populations. And I think by doing that, what we're trying to develop are counter stereotypes to what you might be seeing mm-hmm. in the news or on television programs or elsewhere, stereotypes about low-income people that you can counter just by actually meeting low-income people. Right. This is a fascinating topic. We are unfortunately running low on time. But before we close out, I wanted to give our guests a chance to maybe let us know how we can reach out to them. So what's the best way to reach out and get in touch if somebody wants to learn more or if they want to get a copy of the book? Uh, you can reach Judge Donald and me, Professor Redfield, at uh, my email, which is my name, Sarah Redfield at gmail.com, S-A-R-A-H dot R-E-D-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. Perfect. And uh, my email address at the law school is mneats, that's M as in Michelle, N as in Nancy, E-I-T-Z, at ggu.edu. Perfect. And Ron? Uh, you can always reach me. I'm chair of the state and local government section of the ABA through the ABA website or my email address, rkramer at cypharth.com. Well, thank you all for, for your contributions today. And we have reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.